Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, David A. Simon, visiting assistant professor of law at the University of Kansas School of Law and project researcher at the Honkin School of Economics. In this installment of the podcast, which we've called Ex Cathedra, we'll be taking a step back from actual articles to talk to senior scholars about their scholarship. To discuss this topic today, my guest is Jeffrey Bellin, University Professor of Teaching Excellence and Robert and Elizabeth Scott Research Professor of Law at the William and Mary Law School, where he researches and teaches subjects in criminal justice, evidence, and other related areas. Professor Professor Bellin's legal writing is regularly cited in federal and state judicial opinions and scholarly commentary. He contributes to the media, appearing frequently on Bloomberg Law Radio and Hearsay with Kathy Lewis on NPR. Prior to teaching, Professor Bellin served as a prosecutor with the United States Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. He also practiced with the San Diego office of Latham & Watkins. Professor Bellin, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, David. So I'd like to start off today, as we've been starting off with most of our guests, if you could, by uh, having you tell us a little bit about how you developed your, your influence, your, your scholarly agenda, and who influenced you in and how that took shape. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think I'm a little bit unique for a law professor in that I didn't know that I wanted to be a law professor until uh, relatively uh, a, a ways out of law school. So I kind of gone through law school and fortunately enough had a kind of resume from law school that set me up well for teaching, but I hadn't thought about teaching uh, until I was out in practice maybe six or seven years uh, at which point, uh, you know, I started to try to write some articles uh, to make myself attractive as a law school candidate. And I still remember uh, I didn't have uh, part of this is I didn't have connections with uh, my professors or really anyone uh, in the academy. And I reached out to kind of one of the professors that I knew best from law school and kind of asked, uh, I said, you know, I'm thinking about going into teaching. Uh, this might have been like maybe eight years out of law school. and um, you know, I was thinking I would go in a couple of years, maybe I'll put together some uh, things. And his response was like, you need to go now. Like you're, you're late, you're late to the game. Like you've been out in practice too long. Uh, and so that was uh, really kind of eye opening to me because I had thought of it as, as the opposite that in order to teach, you need to like be established in practice. And uh, it's kind of, that shows you how little I knew about the, the uh, legal academy, that it's kind of the opposite that you can have some practice, but too much practice is uh, seen as a negative. So anyway, I got into uh, I got into the game at that point and um, wrote some articles, and I think it worked out really well for me in terms of uh, giving me a voice in the scholarly field that I went into. So obviously, criminal justice because I had experience uh, both as a prosecutor and I worked a couple years at the uh, Court of Appeals in California writing criminal opinions, uh, appellate opinions. And so that experience, plus the work at the law firm, which also touched on criminal things, but other other uh, areas uh, really gave me uh, like, uh, I think a solid base of identity of, of who I was and what I thought about the law and what I thought needed to be uh, highlighted and uh, what was really going on out there uh, once I got into uh, writing about things and teaching. And I think that, uh, became a real strength for me uh, in kind of having a, a unique voice in the academy. So as you were practicing and starting to think about um, how you might develop your research interests, 
what came to mind as working on a first paper or working on a first idea that would become a first paper? Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. And that that's a really great question, a great way to uh, frame it. Uh, that's one of the benefits of kind of my time in practice, especially if you can have the practice experience that you uh, garnered match up with what you end up doing as a, a professor. And that's what happened with me. So I just have tons of thoughts and things that um, I think just jumped out at me when I was doing this, uh, doing criminal justice work. And uh, and the kind of those things then became articles. So kind of one of the first things I started writing about was criminal defendant testimony. Uh, I, I had really noticed uh, in the jurisdiction I was in, um, defendants would testify about half the time in trials. And uh, it just struck me that the trials when defendants testified were much more meaningful in terms of like a search to figure out what happened than the trials in which the defendants remained silent. And, you know, it wasn't that we would win those cases or lose kind of, it was pretty much a wash, but it just seemed like the jury found out so much more about what had happened. And we were really focused on the areas of disagreement. And it struck me that it was odd that our system uh, really kind of discouraged defendant testimony uh, in a way that I thought, I could push back on as a scholar, and is is there uh, are there things about the way we have the uh, the criminal justice uh, regime set up, especially penalties on defendants who testify, that we might remove, and that would improve the criminal justice system. So that was something that I had kind of that stood out to me in practice, uh, and then I started writing. I think I ended up writing kind of a couple articles saying we should uh, stop punishing defendants for testifying through impeachment and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, an article about the benefits of defendant testimony uh, and all just because I had, you know, I, I had influences from practice, just seeing that, uh, seeing the way that just kind of intuitions from practice that I could explore in a scholarly way once I got into uh, the academy, you know, none of which came from the academy itself. I think this was um, something that was, you know, a little bit unique to like an interest that I had developed outside of what I would have developed if I had just been listening to uh, legal professors, mentors, and things like that. Yeah, you touch on something here that June Carbone touched on uh, in a different way in an interview I did with her, which was it's much easier to write from areas that you know than learn new areas and write about them. And to that point, I wonder how you got feedback on early drafts or early thoughts about the article or articles that you were writing from other people who might have a different perspective or help you refine your thinking so that it would be more in line with, say, a law review article than maybe a bar journal article or something like that. Yeah, great. great. And, and, you know, and that is exactly right. So there's, there's benefits you get from kind of having a practice mindset when you get into teaching and, and writing, and there's negatives. And, and so you're kind of touching on the negatives. And I, I always uh, think this when, you know, I'm looking at entry-level scholars now, and you look at the the asterisk footnote, and it's like a who's who of the field. You know, everyone you've ever heard of in the field is listed in the footnote. Uh, and if you go look back at my uh, early articles, it's like, you know, the comments came from, you know, some other friend of mine. And maybe if I was lucky, one or two professors, I could get to read uh, the work just because I didn't have the connections. And obviously, it would have been better if I knew more people who are willing to uh, look at my work, and and that would have really helped the way you suggest to kind of uh, uh, style it more in terms of a uh, legal uh, 
uh, scholarly work as opposed to something that was uh, focused on practitioners. You know, you can kind of intuit it by reading mm-hmm. articles, but that was that was something that I was missing. At the same time, it, it helped me to have my own voice, right? And I think it, it benefited, but it did take me a couple of years. And I think, you know, only recently, uh, say the last five years, have I really gotten, you know, where I, I think, you know, I've, I've kind of cleansed the, uh, I'm writing this as a tip for how you can win your criminal case out of my uh, writing. And now it's more, you know, more, it looks more like an academic writing in, in a, in a good way. Yeah. So could you say more about how that transition happened? In other words, maybe speak to some of the, the characteristics of your articles or articles in general, as you got farther along in your career and what stood out to you as being something to include uh, characteristics that you found valuable for articles to have other characteristics you found were kind of a hindrance. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one obvious difference is, you know, talking about uh, doctrine. And so you could, you could see there's kind of a sense that some articles are very doctrinal. And I think when you're starting out, uh, that's that's fine. And, and, you know, actually probably more likely that you're going to have an impact or add value when you're just starting by talking about a piece of doctrine that is flawed. Uh, for example, one of my, I think, best works early on was just pointing out that the the rules that the courts were using to decide whether to allow in uh, testifying defendants' prior convictions just are internally incoherent. Like they, they had kind of they were using one of the factors that had originally originally developed in one direction. They had kind of flipped it and were using it in the opposite direction. So kind of a really powerful piece in terms of pointing out a clear flaw in the doctrine that mattered. And I, you know, I'm still really proud of that. And you know, courts have cited it, and and it's an important uh, work, and and really needs to, you know, have actually, you know, that flaw needs to get even more attention. Uh, but at the same time, there's kind of another level to academic writing that you you kind of progress to. Uh, after a while, that's more than just critiquing the doctrine, uh, and and you know, start to bring in uh, like theory and what's underlying uh, this uh, prescription, or you know, some of the work I'm doing uh, more recently is kind of what is the role of the prosecutor, and what should we expect of prosecutors as an institution, and that's that's kind of uh, you know a different kind of scholarship, and it's a little harder um, to think about. And especially, you know, as you move out of, uh, you know, for a practitioner, the first kind of scholarship is going to be an easier transition uh, than the second kind of scholarship. And that's been the, I think, the growth that I've tried to have is going from kind of being smart and and clever and kind of just putting in the work to figure out interesting doctrinal puzzles to getting bigger picture uh, thoughts out there uh, that, you know, draw on the doctrine, but are really uh, more about uh, like theory and um you know, like why are we doing things certain ways and uh, interdisciplinary stuff and bringing in empirical information and just kind of putting together a bigger picture uh, piece that I think it, you know, I think only works if you've mastered the other stuff, uh, but is is kind of a, a bigger uh, project and something that a lot of legal academics uh, are striving for. So would it be fair to say that it would be somewhat risky for a junior person to embark on the kind of work you just described? I mean, is there, is there, are there drawbacks for someone who's interested in that kind of work, but maybe is just starting out or written one or two articles in the field? Yeah. So like I, you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to um, say that there's kind of right or wrong answers to any of this stuff. Like I'm happy to say what I did. Uh, So certainly I wouldn't have felt comfortable 
starting out and saying like, now I'm going to redefine, you know, the Fourth Amendment doctrine, uh, or, you know, now I've thought of a new way to think about this whole topic that everybody's missed for the last 20 years, including, you know, the people that were just teaching me last year, this exact right. thing. Uh, and, and, you know, so like, I think that's hard to do at the very outset of your career. Now, it certainly doesn't mean it can't be done. And some people, uh, you know, have, have do actually stumble upon uh, an insight like that, that can revolutionize a field. But I think it's a lot easier to say you're doing that than to actually pull it off. And I think that the, the likelihood of pulling it off is more likely towards the end of, you know, a long career of, of studying things than at the very beginning. So, you know, I'd say like it's a risk reward calculus. If you can pull it off, uh, you've redefined the field, you've kind of hit the prominence of the legal profession in your first year before even teaching. That's great. Uh, but like, a, you know, it's come out already. I'm skeptical that sure. can be done. Well, well, me too. But now you've made me sound judgmental. I don't. I don't mean to be judgmental. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's good to be ambitious, but it's also good to know your limits. And I think that speaks to getting feedback from other people that maybe you know and trust, running ideas by other people um, before you go out and and try to publish something. And I wonder if you still do that sort of thing now uh, before you decide yeah, this is something I'm going to go forward with, or yeah, this is pretty much the way it's going to be. I'm not going to change it that much. Right. So I've gotten better now. So what happened that worked really well for me was I, uh, like I said, I didn't have connections when I got into academia, uh, but I really worked hard and I think I had some interesting things to say. And, um, people started to notice my work and, and, you know, people that I really respected in my field, and it became easier over time for me to get feedback from uh, the people who were working in my areas, even though I didn't know them, just because they started to know the work I was doing. And that is very valuable, you know, to get that kind of feedback. I mean, that's really the ideal is of what you want, is you want to find out from people who have been working in the field successfully, kind of where does your work fit? And, and you know, a lot of times they're not going to agree with it, but they will... Uh, help you shape it to be better, right? Because in the in the business of uh, legal scholarship, uh, there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of people say like I think this is a great piece and I totally disagree with it, and that's fine, right? That's uh, that's not that doesn't mean it's a bad piece. Uh, it just means you're kind of part of the conversation now, and it it is really valuable to get that kind of feedback. And and uh, at least for me, it was kind of hard because I wasn't at least wasn't that successful just kind of sending things to people and getting really good feedback. Mm. Uh, occasionally that would work out and there's a few people that are wonderful like that, but uh, you know, for understand, you know, you can understand people are very busy mm. and uh, until I kind of started making a name for myself, it was a little harder to get the kind of feedback that was the most valuable, but still you can show stuff to anyone uh, and get really valuable feedback and you certainly should. And that's, that's very valuable. I do think at some point you're showing to so many people that, it's it's hard to um, yeah. it's hard to get all of the different things together into any kind of coherence because everybody's saying something different and it can be hard to figure out what you're doing at, beyond a certain point. But you know, if you can get a couple really knowledgeable people or people that just care about you enough to take the time to talk about your work uh, with you, that's that's hugely valuable. Yeah, I think that last piece of what you said is really important. That you start soliciting too much advice. You're going to get too many answers and you might end up just where you started. Sometimes it's better to to just seek the advice of a couple people and digest their comments and, and see what works. I, I think that's 
that's really good advice. And, and typically there's people that are writing, you know, on what you're writing on and you can kind of imagine like these three people are the perfect people and, and hopefully at least one of them will give you some feedback. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to pick up on uh, that you said a minute ago was about doing interdisciplinary work and there's more and more people in the legal academy who have PhDs and other disciplines and for them doing inter- interdisciplinary work is is easier than it is for the rest of us who don't have that same training. And I wonder, are there, for people who are interested in that work, are there ways of breaking in? Uh, are there Are there means of starting to approach an interdisciplinary work before you actually go full throttle uh-huh. in, into like an empirical study of the criminal justice system. Right. Yeah. Well, so one of the things I think that works great that people do is you'll see a pair of so someone who is an expert in empirical methods and someone who knows, you know, criminal justice really well, uh, get together and write a piece. And I think those work great. I think that's, that's kind of the ideal um, uh, I think it's a little harder, you know, what you see sometimes is someone who's an expert in empirical methods writing something about criminal justice, and often there's kind of a disconnect between what they're measuring and what they think it's showing. And it's so you kind of, it's it's hard to have, just because, you you know, life is finite, it's hard to have, you know, the PhD and all these things, and also know about the nitty gritty of the criminal justice system. And some people do that, and that's great. But to get all that together, you often need kind of more than one person. And so one way to do it is to just connect with someone who kind of, you know, you know someone in the psychology department or something, if you want to do certain kind of studies, uh, to try to uh, link kind of your expertise with their expertise and do something really well. And the other, the other kind of note of caution I would do here uh, is it's it's important to have an expertise in something. If you're kind of you know half in this and half in that, but you never really fully develop an expertise in, in any one thing, uh, that can be problematic when it comes time for tenure and things like that. Well, that's good advice. And since we're talking about writing and doing all different kinds of writing, I wonder if you could say a, a little about how you find time to write, when uh, when you write, how you write, what strategies you've found that have been helpful to stay a productive scholar? Yeah. So th- this is an area where I think different things work well for different people. I'll tell you about, uh, find it for me, uh, what's worked really well is that I, I kind of am super engaged by the work I'm doing, right? So like the field I'm in, criminal justice, uh, is interesting to me all the time. And so, you know, even when I'm not working, I'm listening to a podcast about criminal justice or I'm reading a book about criminal justice. And so, and the same with evidence, which that, you know, the criminal justice sounds normal. I think people could be interested in that. I'm actually also very interested in evidence, which is a little bit strange. Uh, And so uh, hopefully people won't make it this far into the podcast to find that out. But for both of those things, you know, for me working on an article about evidence that I'm into or criminal justice, I actually enjoy it. And so that makes it, that makes a world of difference, right? So, and you know, I, th- I think of this all the time when people are thinking about what kind of field to get into, uh, if they're going to be an illegal, illegal academic, you know, it's so valuable if you can pick a field that, that excites you and that you're going to be engaged with, because that makes everything else work well. Uh, and so the other piece of that is I also, um, I also teach 
the topics that I'm writing about. So I teach a seminar that's criminal justice topics. And often I can kind of use things I'm writing about as part of the seminar. And then I teach criminal procedure and I teach evidence, criminal law, and kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm like always part of that universe. And, and that helps me um, to just be thinking about things and working on things. And because I actually enjoy that, it doesn't feel like work often. And so, you know, any free time I have, and, you know, especially if people, uh, when you, you have family obligations and things, kind of just being, uh, enjoying the work makes such a difference in terms of whether you're going to be able to find, you know, a little time uh, to work on things in between various other things you're working on. And so that's been what the, the kind of magic for me and that what allows me to, uh, write as much as I do is that I actually enjoy writing stuff. And so, uh, that, that makes it so that, you know, between, you know, playing another, uh, game of call of duty or watching CNN, uh, I can actually, uh, skip those things and work on an article cause I like it enough, but, you know, obviously other things intervene and you need to, uh, portion out kind of what, what, um, what works for you. I've, I've kind of always been also very efficient. Uh, this comes from practice. I, you know, had uh, various jobs that forced me to be efficient and I was able to translate that into uh, legal teaching as well. They were forcing you to be efficient when you were working for the government. <laughs> it's, it, it, this is how they did it. They said, you have uh, six cases set for trial on Monday. Oh, okay. And then, you know, then it's like Friday and then, you know, I'd actually solve that problem. And then they would send me to cover someone else's case that exploded and through that i became expert at um basically to to make sure i survived that experience uh, i became expert in uh kind of figuring out you know how to do what needed to be done in the least in the little amount of time that i had before you know i had to call my first witness or things like that right i don't necessarily recommend that experience for anyone but that uh that was uh, that like if you weren't efficient before that job uh, you would be after, and I should I should clarify. So it's the U- United States Attorney's Office in Washington D.C. is really like a district attorney's office. So it wasn't. It's not like the. Um, I'm sure the time management skills required in in an actual federal job are different than they were right. in that one. No, I just I'm just teasing a little bit, but I do, <laughs> I do think it's important, right, to point out that you enjoy what you're doing, and that you know, for so many of us who are doing this or attempting to do this work in, in legal academia, academia, we, we enjoy what we do. And that's part of the reason that we do it. It's not just a, another job and finding motivation that way can be very helpful. So it's also maybe a, a, just a point to flag that if you're writing in an area that you're not as passionate about, you might not be as, as productive. So, yeah, I mean, I was just going to plant that flag and and let, it, and let it sit there and then hopefully uh, turn to a different discussion, which is something I haven't yet touched on in this series, which is teaching. And for many people, this is less and less true than it was maybe even 10 years ago. But for many people who join the legal academy, they don't have training in teaching methods. They don't have much teaching experience, if any unless they're in a PhD program or they do a, a visiting assistant professor or fellowship, they don't get um, that much teaching experience. So since you came, it sounds like directly from practice, I wonder how you can, I wonder if you could talk about how you dove into teaching and then learned how to swim. 
<laughs> yeah, that's well well phrased. Uh, so for me, uh, what motivated, like I think what worked for me, again, maybe not something that would work for, or that I should recommend, but I kind of just for the reasons you said, I was not sure that I would be good at teaching. You know, so I had I'd written some articles before I got my first teaching job, but I had no idea, you know, how to teach a law school class. Uh, there was no training, right? And in, in, uh, if you go from practice to uh, your first teaching job. And I still remember, again, this feeling uh, I was teaching kind of the first class I taught was the first year criminal law class in the fall. So it would be the first class that a lot of these students uh, had. And I kept wondering when someone was going to come and make sure I was you know, teaching the right things and make sure I knew what I was doing. And it kind of never happened. I even asked someone, like, what kind of quality checks do you have in place? Uh, probably a bad question to ask when you're at your first job. Uh, but their response was, oh, well, we, we wouldn't infringe on your freedom, uh, your academic freedom by suggesting what you should teach or anything like that. And um, that was kind of eye-opening to me. I never had a job where they kind of uh, said things like that. And so part of my reaction to all of that was just to really kind of work my butt off and make sure I knew um, you know, I knew everything and I was ready for every question. And obviously you won't be uh, because there's just so much when you're first starting out. Uh, but and then the other thing that was just such a benefit for me was that I was coming into it having you know been a prosecutor, and um, that just gave me some credibility with the students. Kind of as much as I bumbled, they assumed I must know what I was talking about because I had done it in the real world. And the other thing about it that was interesting is, I th- and I think really helped my teaching, was I came into teaching and I had views about what I was teaching that were different from what was in the book. And I'll give you an example that applies to criminal law. The criminal law classes are really structured around the model penal code in a lot of law schools or maybe every law school. And I just had no time for the model penal code. I hadn't, I always used to say this, I hadn't heard of it when I was practicing law. Uh, No one mentioned it. I couldn't imagine the laughs that would happen if I had tried to reference the model penal code during some of my arguments. And so for me, uh, when I was teaching criminal law, I would figure out the criminal law in the jurisdiction. So I started in Texas. I was teaching them the Texas uh, criminal code. And, you know, we talk about the model penal code, but I focused on the Texas uh, penal code. And the uh, so that takes a lot of work. I really had to figure I'd figure out the Texas law. I didn't know it before I started teaching. And I had to assign that instead of the parts of the book. But because I was teaching kind of what I believed was important to the students, and, you know, it doesn't, there's, a, there's room for, for, for debate there, I'm not saying everyone should do this, but since I believed in it, it made the teaching easier, even though it was a lot of work to kind of get up to speed uh, on that. And I, I do that every time I teach criminal law, I learn the jurisdiction that I'm in's law and teach that. Uh, but I've noticed, though, you know, over time that the kind of hardest time when you're teaching is when you're teaching something either you don't fully, you know, buy into or get, I, I think that kind of the students detect that and that becomes problematic and, and it's kind of better to, you know, really figure out what it is that you think is important for the students to learn. And once you're on that page, right, you have to figure it out, but that will translate well in terms of, um, you know, the students' receptiveness and how well you're going to do teaching it. Have you found that there are different teaching methodologies that you use as you go farther and farther along in your career? I mean, do you stick with Socratic method or have you opened up to, or maybe you started doing this when you started teaching? I don't know. I'm just being presumptuous. But (laughs) have you opened up to other areas, uh, other methods of teaching besides the Socratic dialogue? 
Yeah, great, great. Uh, that's that's a great question, also. And I think the key there, like, like I said, I think um, there is, I guess, some training now. You're referring to like VAPs and things, but the key thing I think for a law professor is to just recognize that you don't know, you know, you haven't been trained. There's not a right way to teach a law school class, and kind of try things. And the things that work for you, kind of keep doing those things. The things that don't work, kind of abandon those as fast as you can and be open to new things. And that's really been uh, like what's worked for me as a teacher has been a willingness to embrace new uh, ways of teaching and, and just be open to all sorts of ways of engaging your students uh, and then, you know, what will happen is some things work, some things don't work, and you kind of collect the things that work over time, and you get enough of those that you start getting, uh, I think, you know, people say uh, that the class is really good. And I think, you know, if they're saying that, uh, that it, it, it hinges on, you know, the various mistakes I've made over time that I've kind of fixed by adopting things. So, for example, just as an example, uh, I actually had an evening class when I first started out, um, and the students are super smart and, and kind of um, interesting, but they didn't have that much time to read and they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't uh, as automatically engaged as say like a first year uh, typical 1L class would be. And so for that class, I started doing these uh, in-class uh, like breakout sessions. And so I'd break the students up and I'd walk around and talk with them while they puzzled over some criminal law problem. And that worked so well in the evening class that I just started using that in all my classes. And, and that I just like that just works for me really well as a way to have the students, especially students that aren't normally kind of interacting, kind of get involved in the class and, and uh, just changes the class dynamic. And obviously you don't have to do that all through the class, but uh, stuff like that that I just kind of stumbled upon in a particular setting and worked really well. And then just kind of keep using that throughout my teaching and, and just being open to you know, there's a million different ways to do this. That's the beauty of it. The problem is it's not clear which is the right one. And, and I think the answer often depends on like what your school is like and what uh, you are like. And, and you kind of be, be true to those things and you'll come up with some really great ideas. But that one of the things I, I um, like I said before, I don't like to be judgmental. So, and I don't think there's right or wrong answers, but I am sometimes discouraged that um, we, we don't innovate enough. There's not enough kind of experimenting in law school classes and just trying different things and failing sometimes. I think there's this wonderful freedom to try a lot of different things and we should be, we should be doing that. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I agree with that. And um, using breakout sessions or other forms of student interaction that get the students engaged in a different way, I think is great. I also wonder if you've ever used since you have an extensive practice experience in um, private practice and government work. Uh, If you've ever used real world simulations, for example, when I learned evidence, the course was taught by someone who it was, it was designed to be a real world simulation. The exam was set up like, even though it was a written exam, it was set up as a transcript of a trial. And then you'd enter when you thought there would be an objection and that sort of thing. Have you ever used that? technique in your classes so there's there's like a million different things and i have a colleague who does lots of neat um uh like kind of almost experiments uh during the class and that actually at some point you have to be careful about uh i i have uh, like strong boundaries about how much um i can uh, do things that might make the students uncomfortable uh but uh, like one example like that you talk about simulation i think you know if you're going to do any kind of criminal class uh plea bargaining is a huge deal and it's not really covered in 
uh, a lot of the materials. So I, I try to work in a plea bargaining exercise with the students where I pair them up and, you know, they go out into the, you know, in between classes and negotiate through a fact pattern. And, and then we talk about it. And those are just great classes because the students get really into it and it's interesting to them. And it's, that's something just from practicing that I was very comfortable saying like, this is how it, you know, it would be in the real world. And these are the kind of things you'd be thinking about and just putting together an exercise like that. Uh, is, is that's a great example of kind of, you know, something besides just sitting there and telling them what the doctrine says, but making them work with the doctrine. So one of the ones I did was like various kinds of murder that the person could be charged with. And they, instead of just telling them, you know, here's the definitions and then maybe asking them uh, in Socratic fashion, have them kind of negotiate a plea with someone else based on certain facts and make them work with the nef- definitions and see how like different facts push you into a different kind of uh, homicide or something like that. I think all that stuff uh, is is really um, kind of like worth trying things like that. On the other hand, it's it's hard, right? It takes time, and there's a risk that it won't go as well. Uh, but you know, I think I think these things pay off. And for me, you know, I've just started doing so many different things in class that the classes where I don't have stuff like that to me are just not as rewarding or not as interesting. And and just what I was talking about before, because I'm really like into uh, the material myself, I want the class to be interesting to me, and and so I kind of create a lot of uh, little, um, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's a, it's a, like a Broadway show, but a, like a lot of different things going on to keep everybody engaged, including, uh, the professor. Yeah. It sounds like you really enjoy teaching and enjoy your job, enjoy the material. I wonder if you could for the next, I still, I still deserve a raise though. Just, just in case that is unclear. <laughs> well, if you have tenure, you're in a position to say stuff. <laughs> um, uh, no, I, I, I wonder if we could, uh, wrap things up by you talking about what are some of the most challenging and one of the, what are some of the most rewarding aspects of, of teaching students? Uh, yeah. So the challenging, I think one of the challenging things is um, the, this, you know, there's some students that will just learn by themselves. Right. And then there's some students that, um, you know, need certain things. And so the, the, the real challenge for me uh, especially I, I notice this in evidence the most is that there's some concepts in evidence that are just really hard um, just conceptually for the students. And the challenge is, is kind of getting everyone across the finish line with these like really important concepts that I think everyone, every lawyer needs to know and figuring out kind of not just how to teach the best students, right? The students that are sending you notes about how they, you know, went on to clerk for this and then, you know, this, then they love the class, uh, but making sure that you're reaching kind of everyone in the class, uh, people with different learning styles and different levels of engagement. And I think that, uh, you know, that's something I'm, I'm always kind of trying to fine tune and figure out, um, you know, who, uh, like who's, who's being left out of the discussion and, and uh, that kind of difficulty. Uh, and so, you know, that's just an ongoing challenge and you need to, you know, try and interact enough with the students that you get to see what's working and what's not for each, each of them. And what aspects of teaching are, do you find most rewarding? What are some? Oh, most rewarding. Yeah. So, and, you know, just obviously working with the, the individuals, the, the students themselves, uh, especially, um, in recent years, I've started to, uh, you know, because as the students, uh, you know, get out into the world uh, for longer, so I've only been, I've been about 10 years, but, um, you know, so there's not, none of my students have become president yet, but the uh, the kind of, you know, you, you start to interact with students that you taught who are now doing really impressive things. Kind of you're impressed 
uh, with the students on the on the back end, and that's been uh, really rewarding for me to kind of not just see you know this student is doing this has become this kind of amazing uh, professional, uh, but also to see that that's also happened like that that's going to be the case for your current students, mm-hmm. and just to kind of be open to uh, really learning from the strengths uh, of your students that. Uh, and Lord knows there's plenty of things that I could learn uh, more about and, and just to see all the diversity of uh, different kinds of excellence, say, in the students that you're interacting with. And um, I think that's that's just a blessing, right, to be able to interact with all these people who are actually kind of interested in what you have to say and receptive and um, and then to follow them over the years. I think that's that's awesome. Well, I think that's a great place to end. That's a, a on that note of gratitude. And uh, I'd just like to thank you, Professor Belland, for coming on the show and, and speaking with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. can't deny that cut flowers given time will surely die they'll do fine with candles and some wine but it's a crime yeah it's a crime that you're kissing on that girl for all to see and it's a crime that she's going home with you and not with me It's plain to see That boxes of candy will make you sigh But confidentially They'll just rot her pretty teeth And it's a crime Yeah, it's a crime That you're kissing on that girl for all to see Yeah, it's a crime That she's going home with you and not with me It's been proved that pups and kittens too will make you swoon But it stands to reason that they'll just give her fleas and it's a crime Yeah, it's a crime That you're kissing on that girl for all to see Yeah, it's a crime That she's going home with you and not with me.